All right, and we're off and running. So welcome everybody to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we're going to talk about all kinds of strange, fucked up exploitation movies, um, primarily from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, sort of the era of VHS. And the idea is that these are the kinds of odd things that you might find um, or might have found in the video store um, which in my case would have been like growing up as a kid and a teenager. Um, this is a, the, this movie we're doing tonight, um, Blood and Lace from 1971, is a particularly, it's a perfect choice because I think it really speaks to the aesthetic we want um, for the films we choose, but uh, it's kind of an inappropriate choice because it was never released on VHS or DVD in the United States. Um, to my knowledge, the only version of it available up until a couple years ago was a Japanese VHS tape. Um, but now uh, it is available on Blu-ray, and shockingly enough, it's available on. This is my dog is screwing this up. Right? You can you can hear my dog, right? Oh, totally, yes. Well. <laughs> We are just going to run with it because I have no idea if she's going to continually interrupt these episodes or not. Um, so with all that said, this is now a very easy to view movie. Um, so since I didn't say it earlier, uh, my name is Luke and I'll be your host for the evening. And I am joined by Leland. My name is Leland and I am a willing guinea pig to these experiments. And so... I just want to chime in real quick. As far as availability of this film, it's even on YouTube in its entirety. I cannot. So which, which platform did you watch it on? I watched it on Amazon Prime. Okay, good. So there's two versions, um, one of which is slightly edited. My VHS copy has some of the gore cut out and one shot of nudity cut out. Um, it's not a vastly different experience, but I'm curious which version is on YouTube. Um, I didn't watch it all the way because I wasn't aware there's a difference in versions, but I don't remember any nudity in the prime one. It's not explicit. It's just the scene where Bunch is trying to seduce Walter and you see her from behind. All right. Yeah. So we will get to that. Um, this is definitely going to be, uh, we're going to spoil the movie for everybody. Um, and this is a movie that you do not want spoiled for you if you have not seen it before. Uh, so my recommendation would be stop listening, uh, go watch the movie, and, and then come back and, and listen to this once you're in on all of the secrets. Uh, and there are many for this particular film. Um, but if you have seen this movie, it'll give you a good idea of the kinds of movies that we'd like to bring you on Video Store Nightmares. All right. So um, before we get into the film, Leland, how did you first get into movies like this? Um, you basically introduced me to this entire genre as we were growing up together. Uh, both 70s, 80s, and early 90s horror films. Of course, I had seen some of these on my own, but it was you who dragged me into this portal, this uh, this like fever dream of um, <laughs> of, of, of what we're about to, to talk about right now. Fever dream is a really wonderful characterization of this movie. Um, I was 
I was definitely not allowed to watch movies like this when I was a kid. Um, and then once I was able to get my hands on them on my own, I think I went overboard and dove a little too deeply into the, uh, the exploitation world. Um, I, it, you know, Leland knows, but our listeners do not. Um, when I first, when video stores were essentially going out of business, I bought way too many VHS tapes and I had uh, sort of a video store in my house. Um, I've since sold most of them, but uh, gotten a little bit back into it recently. Um, and I, I'm thankful enough to have this movie on VHS, I, that Japanese release I told you about. And I'll post a, a picture of it to our Instagram so that people can take a look. Um, but with that, let me play the trailer for you. And uh, then we're going to run through this. What you call death may, may be only the temporary absence of life. You're a witch. Terror strikes again and again. Someone tried to kill me last night, and I know who. It was just a dream. I'm not staying here to be killed by some maniac. Blood and lace. How many faces does terror wear? like him, huh? Nice and young. Don't worry, Walter. You and your little slut can have each other. I'm clearing out. She searched through the dark corridors of the unknown only to find the unbearable. So I'm not sure if that's the original like Grindhouse trailer for the film or not. Uh, that came from the Scream Factory Blu-ray that came out um, a few years back. Uh, but it, it has that feeling of like a 1970s trailer. Um, the first thing I notice in this trailer, and it's the first thing I noticed in the movie as well, um, in the opening credits, is the music. Leland, what did you think of the music in this movie? Uh, really, I think this whole film used a lot of stock sound effects. This is very apparent during night scenes where every, it's very clear, every scene shot at night in this movie is done during the day with a blue filter because you have a lot of bald men in this film and either it's the sun or the moon has gotten extremely close to the, <laughs> to the surface of the earth because it is gleaming off everybody's head and 
it's like, hey guys, it's nighttime, it's blue, and to prove it, here's some crickets. And it's the same cricket noise for every nighttime scene throughout the entire film. So I would not be surprised if the music was either lifted from other films or just taken from some sort of stock library. Yeah, it, it is, to my understanding, it's all old um, tracks off library records. Uh, that's why it, throughout this whole movie, you're either listening to like orchestral melodrama music or like 1950s sci-fi theremin music. Um, whenever like something quote unquote scary is happening, the theremin just comes in and it's like you're watching, you know, uh, invasion of the body snatchers or earth versus the flying saucers or something like it really doesn't fit this film at all. Um, but for some reason uh, that just enhances sort of the dream like nature of the film to me. Um, like when you call it a fever dream earlier, I think the, the music definitely contributes to that. I didn't even question the theremin. I just accepted it with all the other weird stuff that happens in this film. I think it just fits in just nicely. I, I think part of this weird uh, of this uh, this film's weirdness is based on uh, improv. I think a lot of this film was improv. Um, I don't think they had much of a plan going in besides maybe a loose script. And I think that gives this movie a lot of its charm. Yeah, so I don't know if it was improvised or not, but I am somewhat familiar with the writer, um, Gil Lasky. He wrote some other movies of similar tone like this around the same time. Uh, there was Mama's Dirty Girls in 1974, The Manhandlers, also from 1974, um, and then... Around the same time Blood and Lace came out, he had one uh, come out called The Night God Screamed, um, which we might eventually do on this cast. Uh, it's, a, it's kind of like Night of the Living Dead, but with cult members instead of zombies. Um, and it, it's got this same sort of grimy exploitation feel. Uh, so this guy who wrote this, this is not uncharacteristic of his work. Um, but I can certainly see what you mean about the, the improv throughout. So after the, after the credits, we get what might be the first POV shot from a killer's perspective of any movie, to my knowledge. I mean, Black Christmas gets a lot of credit for doing it first. And of course, Halloween is the one that sort of set the standard, um, but this film is is way earlier than that. And we start with uh, the killer, presumably, uh, walking through a house with a hammer. And it appears that the hammer is just sort of hanging off of the camera. <laughs> I, I really liked this opening scene. It, re it did remind me of like a first person shooter where the weapon is held right up in your face, exactly how it would not be in real life. But for the artistic integrity, I think it was totally worth it. It um, definitely looks like like in uh, sixty four era Goldeneye, um, with the the <laughs> hammer just hoisted up in front of the face. Um, you're totally right. So we see this pretty brutal hammer murder um, where an un we don't see the assailant, but uh, they kill um, a woman and a man in bed. 
although the man manages to sort of crawl away and then they burn the house down and and we quickly find out that this is our main character ellie's uh, mother and one of her johns because this movie goes to great pains to make sure that we know that her mother is a prostitute and that every man in town quote knows her so after after this the these deaths um we switched to to ellie in the hospital um did you notice anything weird about ellie in this particular scene well the first thing i really appreciated about the scene was how quick the director was to point out that (laughs) that ellie is actually a minor or defined as a minor because she clearly isn't um <laughs> right so uh, for our for our listeners ellie is supposed to be 17 uh she looks all of at least 25 well she is supposed to be 17 in the story but later on i'll i'll uh, there, there's something i gotta bring i gotta bring up about that but going back to this scene um it's always a red flag to me because i went into this thinking it was going to be a pure exploitation film where someone who is supposed to be a child in the script is casted as an adult it's a huge red flag because you know they are going to do horrible things to this character potentially right um is you know there, this is a story about children suffering ultimately and you know laws in 1970s probably didn't allow them to do this to actual children yet on a set so uh you know, the director's just like, hey, bear with me here. This is a minor, and this is the story I want to tell. Um, yeah, there, there, I mean, there's surprisingly little exploitation here in the way of, like, showing her nude or showing her in sexual situations. Um, but the subject matter of the film uh, is certainly inappropriate for a child. And this is probably a good moment to point out that this film is kind of infamous for being the sickest PG-rated film of all time. Because How this did that mo- happen? This movie was rated PG. I don't have an explanation for you there. Well, what I wanted to point out about this scene is that Ellie's voice in this scene is dubbed by a different actress than the rest of the movie oh yeah um i did not notice that at all yeah i i had never noticed it in my past viewings but this time because i had read going in that that was the case you can definitely tell um it's clear that whatever actress dubbed this scene is doing a fairly good imitation but it's definitely a different voice Um, but whoever dubs it, we get some really wonderful lines in this scene. Um, the social worker that is talking to her is like absolutely heartless. And at some point he says, you know, really emphatically, Ellie, you're an orphan now. And she has this great comeback. She says, I was an orphan the day I was born. And then, of course, the movie makes pains to tell us that the social worker knew her mother. Yeah, when, not even uh, subtly, just straight up. Is there any man in this entire movie, besides maybe Walter, who did not sleep with her mother? Is Walter the groundskeeper? No, Walter is the boyfriend, the, the guy that she is interested in. Uh, yeah, I, I would imagine that is probably the only person. 
we know that the handyman, the police detective, the social worker, um, the at least all of them. Um, I feel like there's another character too, but uh, well, regardless, this is like a bad interaction. And Ellie says, you know, I don't want to, you know, I didn't want to come to this hospital. And so we get a scene next of her running away. And she's chased by this strange man. We, we don't know who he is, but uh, ultimately he catches up with her. And we find out that he is the detective that's been hired to look into her mother's killer. But he also already knows Ellie because he used to work at the movie theater. Yes, what a career change. From, <laughs> right. From this... Drama to law enforcement. <laughs> <laughs> this it's, and and he's not a young guy. He's probably what like mid fifties. Uh, yeah, he's pushing. He's pushing like fifty five. There's a couple of scenes where he says something along the lines of like, "When you're my age, you start thinking about this," and it makes it sound as if he's supposed to be a much younger person, but he's definitely getting up there. Um, so they talk and. They establish that the killer of her mother must have seen her face and will probably be after her. Um, and so he takes her back to the hospital, but he tells her, like, you need to not run away again because this killer could be coming after her. And then we see this really odd scene where the detective meets up with the social worker. So before you get bar. into that, yeah, I just have to say it. When Ellie first met the detective, my mind immediately went into the gutter. Um, my, my initial impression was, well, like, this is going to be offender number one. And even she was initially suspicious of this guy after he revealed he was law enforcement because she brings up the fact that he's in plain clothes. And I really like that line because it shows that she is being street smart as um, probably someone in her position would need to be in order to, you know, function on a daily basis um i really liked that that very brief line of dialogue and i was so surprised that he took her to the hospital without incident and i'm thinking wow maybe i need to analyze my worldview and not be so skeptical and expect the worst of people because that wasn't so bad and then the scene you're about to talk about just happened i mean it, it goes without saying that every man in this movie exudes perverseness like they all seem like they're about to molest everybody in sight. Um, and the but the movie is surprisingly almost feminist. Like, as you said, Ellie makes intelligent choices throughout. And one of the main plot lines is that her and this other girl bunch are fighting over this same man. And the man is portrayed as being like naive and helpless and innocent. All of the things that, especially in this era, would have typically characterized the female characters. Did that stand out to you? A little bit, um, now that you mention it. 
Uh, he definitely is a little unlike all the, the other men, but he does eventually succumb to some baser instincts, but we'll get to that later. Yeah, that is true. And and I might be, uh, you know, ascribing too much credit to this film. Um, it's it's not socially progressive by any means, but <laughs> no. there there are certainly surprises. So the, the, the next scene has the detective and the social worker meeting in a bar and the whole point of this conversation seems to be to establish that both of them are sexually interested in 17-year-old Ellie. To a degree. I mean, I think the social worker is attracted, but not necessarily going to pursue because he's got his own piece on the side. I think it's him who says every man in the county knew her mother. Yes. And then definitely. and then the the police detective responds this way. At my age you begin to think about marriage and I'm always looking for good breeding, breeding stock. stock. <laughs> <laughs> and and we should tell in case you have not seen this movie, this detective cannot be described as himself good breeding stock. Um <laughs> He's what, like balding, overweight. I mean, no insult to anybody who is balding or overweight, but uh, he doesn't seem to be in the same category as our 17-year-old heroine. Well, again, I, I agree with the sentiment that there's something wrong with being you know, balding or overweight, but you would not put him in an upper echelon of like potential sperm donors, right? Unless he uh, happened to be also in a men's group. No, I, that is certainly true. Um, but we, we switch over to this orphanage that's, become, that's going to become like the main, you know, uh, setting of the film. And we see this, this young boy with a suitcase who's trying to run away. And this really creepy looking handyman character um, who I think I've seen in, in other movies. Um, he's played by an actor named Lynn Lesser. So and- when I first saw this movie, I was like, all right, I recognize this man. I've seen him in something, but I don't want to cheat and look it up. I want to try to figure it out naturally. And it didn't hit me till hours later when I was getting ready for bed. I'm just brushing my teeth when all of a sudden, ah, Uncle Leo from Seinfeld. It is Uncle Leo from Seinfeld. You're so right. Yes. But yeah. I, wow. I can't think of anything else I've seen him in. But he's so young. I mean, he has a face made for exploitation movies. Um, <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah, for sure. Um, so he he catches uh, this boy who's trying to run away, and he makes it really clear that. It's not that the boy can't run away because, you know, it might be dangerous or, or he might get hurt. It's because if he runs away, the county won't pay them anymore. You're, okay, you're skipping a step here because this is where the movie goes from like zero to 60 in five seconds. I mean, okay, there have already been some disturbing subject matter discussed, but this is where it ramps up. This kid has a suitcase. He's preparing to run away. The groundskeeper's first response to seeing this kid bolt off the property is to go into the cellar and grab a meat cleaver (laughs) 
and then chase the kid, right? This, this is not exactly um, conductive to actually trying to bring the kid back, right? No one's going to see someone with a meat cleaver and be like, oh, you know, I have to go back. That, that's <laughs> not going to happen. Right. So, it, it, and it, this um, this leads up to a point where the boy is is running away, and the handyman. We find out his name is Tom. Uh, he throws the meat cleaver, and it succeeds in chopping off the boy's hand. the The boy runs away, um, and rather than chase him, the Tom sort of gives up. But he puts the hand in the boy's suitcase and takes both back to the orphanage. To be fair, there is like a blue filter over everything. How is he supposed to be able to see that? I have, <laughs> I, I, I remember when, um, so the first time I ever saw this movie, I saw it on like a bootleg DVD. And I remember it being super dark during scenes like this where you could barely see it. Um, the version on Amazon looks pretty good. Like, Grant, you can tell it's a blue filter, but you can see everything. Um, and we see that the, that the boy who's running away is just sort of crouching in some bushes. Um, but Tom gives up looking for him and he goes back to the orphanage. And this is where we meet, um, the owner of the orphanage, Mrs. Deer. While Um, I'm, while I'm thinking about it, this kid, was this kid also played by an adult? I don't know, but none, I mean, none of the kids look the age I think they're supposed to be. No, not at all. Well, some of them are actually portrayed by kids. You can tell which ones, or by, I should say by actual minors, and you can tell because they're the ones that don't have anything awful happen to them. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that is is true. Although, and I'm sure we will get to them eventually, I can think of some films that do some fairly awful things to children. Oh, yes, of course. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but but Mrs. Deer is played by Gloria Graham, who is probably our only like really accomplished actress in the in the cast. Um, she was kind of a big deal in in the fifties, um, and this was this movie I think was kind of her attempt at a comeback. And she was in several um, of these sort of poor exploitation movies. Um, but I think she outacts everybody in the cast. Like I love watching her. I, you know, once you get past the adultness of the actress that plays Ellie, I think she also does an incredibly good job in her role. But between her and the orphanage matron, I'd say they're the the shining parts of the film, acting yeah. wise. Yeah. So, um, Mrs. Deer, you know, calls uh, Tom a drunk. Um, And she again takes pains to point out that uh, they need every kid because they get $150 a month per kid. Um, And this is when we find out what's what's really going on at this orphanage, that this Mrs. Deer has this bizarre belief. And this was the most oddball thing in this oddball movie to me, um, that she thinks that the bodies are still alive of people who die as long as they're preserved. And so every time a a young person tries to run away, her and Tom kill them and put them in the freezer. And then whenever the social worker comes to inspect, 
they thaw the bodies out and put them in the infirmary and pretend that they're sick. This was an angle I was not expecting. And it's just kind of something that the, it's, it's an ongoing theme with this movie that it keeps going further and further away from what you were actually expecting to see, which is, um, I don't know, like a run of the mill seventies horror film. Um, I mean, it's, it's almost, a, it's almost like a proto slasher film with, there is a masked killer who we'll get to, but this is all like psychodrama subplot. Um, and, and I could have, I maybe could have predicted the like killing kids and freezing them and thawing them out to like fool the social worker. But the part about them not being dead and that one day science will allow us to resurrect them. That's where this movie really goes into left field. So, you know, cryonics, right, as like a business, I think originated in the 60s. And then like around the 70s, a lot of these businesses started to go under because it turns out, you know, it's not very profitable to keep a bunch of dead customers around because they're not going to keep making money to give you. So they all had to like thaw and dispose their prior customers, probably appropriately, right? You know, I don't think big cryo would would do something as heinous as uh you know sending all their old clients to a pig farm to slop to save profit for their shareholders right <laughs> but i'd imagine stories like that would probably get into the news and the screenwriter could have saw something like that and been inspired to, to introduce it i'd imagine like because you know freezing like cryo freeze freezing people it's always been like a like a, a cool science fact that's been around for a while. It's in a lot of old sci-fi movies and books. Um, I like to think of it as it might have been like a an IFL science-esque thing of the decade, and some people were just really crazy into it at the time. Well, what what I also, what, what as I, we all as we both know as Floridians, right? You know, I'm not saying cryonics doesn't work because we know Lord Walt Disney himself is being preserved in a high security vault under the giant Epcot ball. Right? <laughs> it is a thing. I forgot that he was under the ball. Of course. Where else would he be? His, his cryo chamber is probably like surrounded by, by shelves of like those animated Disney classics that are like time gated behind limited physical releases. They keep them there with him. I just always think of the the frozen body in Night of the Creeps that's in that cryogenic chamber in the hospital and and spouts all the slugs <laughs> but what really interests me here like what makes mrs deer a really fascinating character is she genuinely like she goes back and forth between seeming to really care about these children and seeming to just be interested in the money like there's a scene where she's talking to one of the frozen corpses and she says something like it's so good that I got to you in time because if I hadn't put you in the freezer, you would have bled to death. And it's yes. said so sincerely. Uh, they don't really uh, go too hard on that angle, but I appreciate that it's there. Yeah, so um, once the bodies are, are thawed out and they're in the infirmary, um, the social worker comes to inspect and he brings Ellie with him. Um, and Mrs. Deer makes sure to tell Ellie that her late husband spoke very highly of her mother. 
So even the men who are not on screen um, are implicated in uh, her mother's business activities. Um, so absolute legend. When when the social worker who very clearly is having some sort of intimate relationship with Mrs. Deer, um, th- they go off to inspect and Ellie starts to wander around and she meets this other young girl, uh, this 16 year old named Bunch. Have you <laughs> ever heard this name before? Not, not for a person, no. It sounds like something you would name a rabbit. <laughs> I actually really like the name. Like, I don't know if I was going to have kids, I would totally entertain Bunch as an option. <laughs> I mean, this season 70s had a lot of weird names for kids, right? Because hippies were having kids. Uh, people during the 60s were having kids and naming them weird things. I, I, I mean, it, it's not too far out there. It's just one I haven't heard. Well, Bunch makes sure to tell Ellie that Walter is her boyfriend. And Walter is another another kid at the orphanage who's probably going on 30. Does <laughs> that seem yeah. about right? That sounds about right. So um, maybe late 20s. But Ellie makes it pretty clear that she is interested in Walter. Um, and when she goes over to meet Walter and to flirt with him, um, she kind of in indirectly asks whether Bunch is his girlfriend. Um, and he says that Bunch is just a cute kid. And so we know at this point that Bunch is kind of overstating their relationship. Mm-hmm. So we we go back and forth between the social worker who looks in on the sick kids. And this is when we find out that there is another girl who tried to run away and she's being punished by being tied up in the attic, which doesn't seem to bother the social worker at all. In fact, he says, what I don't know won't hurt me. Well, he doesn't know specifically that the child has been tied up there, being like dehydrated and starved. He just thinks that the, the orphan is in timeout or something. Yeah, I guess that's true. I think Mrs. Deer even says that, that it's timeout. But there's definitely the implication that like, he knows fucked up things are happening and and he's just turning a blind eye because yeah he's looking the other way well because mrs deer is uh is at the very least suggesting that they might sleep together oh they they're definitely uh, he is going stag with with mrs deer for sure that there is no question about that they don't directly show it but it is going on right um so ellie finds the infirmary and she tries to talk to these sick kids who we know are actually frozen from being in the freezer um and this is when tom the handyman uh catches her um and so she she has seen that there are three kids in the infirmary uh that none of the other kids know about um but ellie and bunch end up being roommates and that does not seem to go over well. Um, Ellie, I think at this point, takes like really emphasizes that uh, 
that Bunch is 16. She calls her sweet 16 or something like that. And so we know she's like rubbing it in her face. This is where the age discrepancy of the main character comes in because initially Ellie is established at 17. This probably does not matter at all for the story, by the way. Um, she is established at 17. Bunch is established at 16, but there are lines of dialogue, probably in both this scene and later on, that establish that Ellie is supposed to be older than Bunch by a couple years. Yeah, I think they say two years at one point. And on top of that, um, something that I thought was strange was when the when, when Ellie was first being brought to the orphanage by the social worker, he mentioned specifically that Ellie is going to be, you know, essentially property of the government until she's 21. Right, like, until she's 21. I noticed were, that. Were you a minor until 21 in the 70s? Because that doesn't really make sense to me because, you know, Vietnam had... 17 year old soldiers drafted into the army and I, the drinking age in america is ping pong between 18 and 21 like depending on the decade right yeah uh, i don't know I, I, I tried to look this up but i kept getting search results about like age of consent and the perfect age for adult actresses and i stopped there because i'm not trying to be put on any more watch lists but <laughs> it, it's like they cannot figure out later on how old she's supposed to be and that's what i'm talking about like the improv i think there's a little bit of improv in the dialogue because otherwise i feel like the screenwriter would have had that like locked down for the whole the whole story. yeah or or maybe they they changed it like they did script rewrites or something um but that's i mean in a lot of ways this script actually ties up shockingly well at the end um where like all the various ingredients come together, but there there are some inconsistencies. Um, we see Mrs. Deer, or we hear her talking to someone, but we can't see who it is, um, about how they're going to have to cut back expenses because she's not getting enough income for the kids. Uh, and we find out later that, that she's talking to her dead husband who she is also keeping frozen so that she can rejuvenate him later. And so she talks to him for a while and then we go to a dinner scene and it's clear that these kids aren't getting enough to eat because one kid is trying to like sneak a roll, like a bread roll into his shirt and Mrs. Deer catches him. And, and this is where you see like just how extreme she is in dealing with these children because she slaps him across the face and then she says that tomorrow he'll get no food at all yes the tyranny starts to show through the thin facade of <laughs> of like <laughs> a benevolent orphan of the benevolent orphanage rulership right um i should mention we kind of skipped over a, a scene involving that hungry kid i don't know his name i'm gonna call him hungry kid because that's his entire character arc throughout this film hungry kid when the groundskeeper is moving bodies from the freezer to the beds and back he runs into this yeah he runs into this kid who is trying to sneak into the kitchen to get food and the the, the groundskeeper's first response was like a death threat to the kid it wasn't even like a hello right he said uh 
He said, if you don't go back to bed, you'll never eat again. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Sorry, I just had to bring that up. Well, so do you think, like, do you think it's weird that this child abuse doesn't disturb us more? Like, is it because the movie's bad or is it because of the era? Or like, why do you think it, it... like, it doesn't bother me, but I'm not sure why. It should. Well, I mean, part of why it doesn't bother us is because as uh, zillennials or millennials, whatever you want to call us, you know, we are um, traumatized on a day-to-day basis. So we're kind of used to this stuff, right? Like, we live in a, a an uncertain world full of endless war and mass shootings, and everyone's depressed. So on one hand, you know, this is like whatever for us, Right. But on the other hand, we know it's a movie, we know it's fake, and it's not exactly being portrayed as uh, like hyper-realistic, right? It's a 70s film that's not trying to be, uh, you know, ultra sad and gritty realistic, like something that would be made today, or say like The Wire to a degree. Like yeah, we I mean... know, now does, does this happen? Do, do social workers exploit children, like collect children for, for paychecks? Yeah, absolutely. Like $150 in the 70s was like 900 back then, something like that. Uh, th- so that's a lot of money we're talking about. That probably goes on to some degree today, although it, it might be harder with uh, cell phones. You know, now it's harder to victimize kids because they just record everything on their phones, right? Yeah, it, it's just <laughs> like there's a difference between being desensitized to something and actually like reveling in it. And for some reason, these 70s psychodrama films like the kind that you know i really want to focus on on this podcast like i get such pleasure out of their perversity and but if i were to hear about this happening in real life like kids being starved and worked to death at an orphanage where the owners are secretly killing them and (laughs) stealing storing them in the freezer like that would be really disturbing to me um, if it was happening in real life. But in the context of this of this film, I don't know. I have a blast with it. Um, <laughs> especially seeing characters like Mrs. Deer is just so appealing and interesting to me. But I can't say why. I mean, the the sort of pop psychology of its nonsense, right? But and and borderline offensive to today's sensibility like you could never make a movie like this now oh of course you could you just wouldn't be able to show it in theaters it probably would be like a netflix original or something i don't know i think that this would have trouble getting distribution at all if cuties can make it on netflix this could make it on netflix with a remake yeah i never uh i didn't see that but i i was somewhat aware of the controversy yeah i don't think you have to see it to know what what's going on there yeah so this is where um this is where things start to get even more twisted um there's this fantastic scene between ellie and mrs deer where mrs deer is basically talking about how she makes it sound like she's really jealous of ellie for having good looks although we find out later that she's not jealous. She just wants to preserve all of the children to be resurrected later. 
with their youth intact. Right. But she, she is definitely sad that she is no longer beautiful. And she has this great line where she says uh, to Ellie, we're going to keep your todays and your tomorrows full until one day, maybe you look in the mirror. And she's talking about when she first looked in the mirror and realized she was old. And it's just like, it's such a well-acted, as ridiculous as the line is, it's that beautiful melodrama acting that, I don't know, this actress can pull off really well. This movie did not deserve a scene of that caliber. I <laughs> I don't know. I think I... I it is the it's one of the standout scenes in the film to me um but it it might be eclipsed by the next one um well no i'm jumping ahead first first ellie is cleaning and she discovers uh jennifer the girl tied up in the attic who is clearly like starving to death and needs water and she keeps asking for for something to drink. And so Ellie tries to, to help her, but the, um, but Tom, the handyman catches her, uh, and says some, makes some threat, like, you know, do you want to join her or something like that? Um, but there's a scene later that I was thinking about where Mrs. Deer brings Jennifer a glass of water and she's holding it in front of her saying like, oh, it's so cool and clean and crisp. But then she drinks it in front of her and doesn't let her have any. I know you're saying that maybe Mrs. Deer is just trying to uh, preserve the youth of these children, but I think she's way more vindictive than that. I think, she's, it, I think she's ultimately jealous that her husband cheated on her with Ellie's prostitute mom the legend and there are some deep seated psychological issues arising from that that are then acted out on all of these young uh you know beautiful women that she sees as a threat to her um to her happiness i hadn't even made that connection but i think you're right that ellie's mom is like really at the center of all of this in a way that I hadn't thought about before. Oh, for sure. She, her screen time in the film is maybe 40 seconds, but she is throughout the entire film. Yeah, it's about the same time that the detective comes to the orphanage and has a scene where he talks with Tom. And it seems <laughs> to be like, a back and forth over who's the biggest pervert and like who likes Ellie more. Um, but of course we established during this scene that, that Tom has also been with Ellie's mother. Yeah. But it was mentioned that the mom wasn't really his type. Right. So right. It yeah. might've been, it, it, it might've been, um, insinuated that maybe he hadn't been with his mom because maybe she wasn't young enough i thought i thought that was the i thought that was the social worker who said that she wasn't his type oh no it was it was definitely uh the the handyman handyman tom well uh, tom is definitely interested in ellie and so is the detective everyone's Um, interested in ellie yeah they make that very clear um 
you, you just don't let prime breeding stock like that go right <laughs> right <laughs> right but this this scene i just had to point out mrs deer's lapels the the collar of her her like blazer are wider than her shoulders these are the widest lapels i have ever seen i did not pay attention to that at all you, I, man you guys see it to believe it like 70s movies are full of giant lapels oh but these okay. might okay. set a record so i have the youtube video pulled up and uh i am i'm i'm going through for for some lapels right now um okay so she has that white sh- she has like a white shirt or something right with uh yeah it's like a white blouse um oh uh, yes you know- okay so i'm in, i'm watching the attic scene right now where she's taunting the attic girl with the water and right. I see what you're talking about now. Yes, I. Now that you mention it, that is all I see. Yeah, it's 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 very hard to not see it. Maybe but, maybe it takes you know, two two viewings of the film. That's really just a testament to her acting, though. That it was so good and so engrossing that I did not notice those lapels until you said something. That is the testament of a good actress that she can outact her lapels. <laughs> So we we see Ellie and Walter, um, this is the boy she likes, kiss. And she tells him that she's going to run away to find her father. And we get more psychoanalysis here than um, I think a scene like this warrants, where she says that each person is is made up of, you know, half of each parent and that there has to be a better half in her than her mother. And that's why she wants to find her father. And so the movie really builds us up to think that whoever her father is, he has to be responsible for all the good in her because it definitely didn't come from her mother. I think we're missing a scene here where Ellie goes into the attic and gets attacked by the handyman. Oh, no, that's coming up. That's coming up. Yeah, so um, w- because the handyman, Tom, uh, offers Ellie a bargain, and he says that he'll help her escape if she comes and talks with him in the cellar. And so they go off to the cellar together, and he tries to, like, kiss her, And she says something like, no, you have to show me how to escape first. And he pulls out a bottle of whiskey and he's like, this is the escape. Whiskey is the escape. And and he tries to rape her. Um, But Walter saw her go down there um, and he goes and tells on her to Mrs. Deer. And so Mrs. Deer catches them and she tries to fire Tom but he blackmails her um, by essentially saying, like, I know too much. And if you fire me, I'll take our secret with us. So if anything, now you're going to pay me more money. Right. Right. Yeah. He tries to, like, weasel more money out of her. Um, but off and on throughout all of this, we see the, this man in a mask, like, sneaking around. And... Um, 
And this guy had to like inspire Wes Craven for Freddy Krueger. Like he he's heavy set, but he's got like a weird burned mask face and a striped sweater that looks like Freddy Krueger's sweater. Did you so, notice that? Yes, definitely. It, I think they definitely took like a latex Halloween mask and like melted it down or removed a lot of hair from it. Is yeah, what it looks like. But we should mention that this scene is so sudden because this is the first time we've seen this character at all. And it's right between two unrelated scenes where suddenly for about 10 seconds, you see this man in this costume come from off frame, look around and then like from a top down view and then descend into the attic. And it's yeah. not even clear that it's a mask at this point, right? Because so many weird things have happened that you're not quite sure what's like what angle this movie is going to go now. Right. You're not sure if it's a mask or if it's just bad special effects. Like right. it's not clear at all at this point. And and this guy's carrying a hammer around. So like the the implication is that it's the murderer of Ellie's mom. Um, but we don't know that for sure because we didn't see him in the original scene. It's just very jarring how they just sandwiched that between two completely unrelated scenes. Right. But we get another scene of Mrs. Deer talking to her frozen husband. Um, and I think she's talking to Ellie when she says that her husband isn't living, but that doesn't mean he's dead. And, and this is another reference to you know people being preserved so they can be brought back later. Do you think she killed her husband? Wow, I never thought about that, actually. I'm, I was surprised they didn't go into it. I mean, we... So when she brings the frozen, his frozen body out, he's in a wheelchair. And for some reason, I thought he must have been in the wheelchair when he was alive. But I don't know. I mean, maybe she just put him in there because he was frozen. I mean, have you ever had to drag around comatose or dead people before? It's just easier if you have them in a wheelchair. Unless I, you're you know, going upstairs or something. I have not had the pleasure, but it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was actually a point where I considered the man uh, that we talked about with the mask was going to be her husband based on how weird this movie was getting. I'm like, I completely entertained that idea up until about 20 minutes before the movie ended. Yeah, that that would make that would make some sense, except there is a scene where Ellie wakes up in the middle of the night and sees the the masked guy with the hammer standing over her. Um, and this is another scene where like Mrs. Deer seems oddly sympathetic, like she doesn't believe her, but she she I don't know. I just got the impression that she cared a little bit about Ellie having had this horrible dream. It was a little inconsistent. Um, I can kind of headcanon explain it away, though, by, by saying that she really just wanted to go back to bed and comforting Ellie was probably the fastest way to get to do that, to getting to reaching that goal, essentially. Yeah, I don't, I mean, maybe it's the actress, like, bringing more scale to this movie than the script has. <laughs> um but for whatever reason, I, I felt really sympathetic for Mrs. Deer during this scene. Yeah, they accidentally portrayed her as a human person. Right. How dare they? 
<laughs> right. But no, no one believes Ellie. And um, there's a bunch of stuff that happens after this about like Ellie and Bunch fighting over Walter. Um, and eventually Bunch kind of succeeds in seducing him. Like she surprises him in the barn naked and Ellie walks in on them in bed together. Um, I don't know. I don't think we need to go into this part. Do you... you basically just covered the important part. This is the part Ellie of the movie. Betrayed. Yeah, this is the part of the movie I cared the least about. Although yeah. I guess it's the breaking point for Ellie to decide that she's going to run away. I mean, her and uh, Boy Toy were on the rocks anyway, because there was another scene where they were fighting in the woods about how, like, why don't you want to escape Boy Toy? Like, this place sucks. And he's like, you know, I'm stable here. This is great. You know, maybe you should try some stability. They, yeah. they were having that... Uh, philosophical clash of ideas in the woods and then the bed the the shed scene happened and that was like the the axing of the relationship her ellie's um, only umbilical cord to the orphanage was cut at that point yeah and nothing to we, lose by running we find out that like i don't know walter is surprisingly okay with everything going on like he must have really low standards um because he says at some point like Ellie says something like, um, you know, we're starving. And he says, but we always get enough. Well, there's a line Bunch says uh, when we were first introduced that, is it Bunch? Someone calls uh, the boy toy basically the matron's pet. Sorry, I don't have all the names uh, memorized. But uh, Mrs. Deer's pet, right? So I'm assuming... Mrs. Deer kind of paid a little bit more attention to him than the other children. I'm not saying anything inappropriate was going on, but I think you could assume that maybe he was getting a little bit of preferential treatment. Okay, that makes sense. And it might explain why. So as soon as he hears about this plan that Ellie's going to run away, he runs and, and tells Mrs. Deer about it. Oh, yeah, he's a total tattletale, but he is the only reason Ellie got saved from uh, handyman tom in the attic so we right can't, we can't quite fault him for being uh, a snitch 24 7 and right. also and i just want to bring up you know boy toy has some mad muscles right he is ripped he is clearly yeah. getting enough protein from the orphanage diet to to bulk up so he doesn't have anything to complain about well and it's all that manual labor they have to do i mean <laughs> yes, El that ellie ellie describes it as a workhouse <laughs> So now that now that they know that Mrs. Deer and Tom know that Ellie is planning to run away, they decide that they're going to have to put her in the freezer. Um, and when she's she's trying to pack a suitcase really quickly, and this is when she discovers the boy from the beginning, his hand is still in the suitcase. And so this is the last straw that <laughs> she definitely tries to run away. Um, but the movie really gets chaotic at this point. So she's trying to run away. Tom and Mrs. Deer are trying to put her in the freezer. The kid who was sneaking the roll, he sees them putting her in the freezer. And so he knows that 
like something weird is going on and he tries to convince the other kids of it, but they don't believe him. And then on top of all of this, the masked guy with the hammer shows up and he fights Tom with the hammer and Tom is using a cleaver. Hammer versus meat cleaver. Yeah. 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 Um, You know, if this movie was just a little less silly with its fight scenes, I think it would have been more of a horror classic, but I still appreciate such a bizarre fight in the attic. I mean, I could imagine this movie becoming a classic if it ever got a release, but this was like only, it only played in grindhouses and drive-ins. It was never released on VHS here, which this is a tangent, but like, I like collecting Japanese VHS tapes, right? And it amazes me the things that got like the low budget American movies that got released in Japan. It's just bizarre to me that, you know, these movies either didn't get a release in the United States or they barely got one. I mean, there's a reason these tapes sell for like insane money, but somehow they got some kind of release in Japan. There's got to be a market for, for, specifically like western like old western cinema in japan like i obviously don't know anybody like that but you know we all know somebody who is totally obsessed with japanese culture over here right you know we lose and there's got to be a japanese equivalent to that for people who are really into american culture like they own an xbox they have a shelf full of like uh western american made movies they actually like make cheese burgers every night right like that's that's got to be a person over there somewhere well i imagine that i imagine that even the you know the tape i have has to be really rare like they can't have made very many of them but it just amazes me that they made any at all (laughs) it's it's bizarre to me Mm. but to make all of this even more chaotic jennifer the girl from the attic shows up and she locks Mrs. Deer and Tom in the freezer. She was in the freezer while all this was going on. At some point, they moved her to the freezer. Oh, see, I didn't, I didn't notice that. There, that I makes more sense. Sh- I think there was a shot of it in, during in, during the fight, so everything was kind of chaotic. But she was already in the freezer, and she comes out and, and locks the. Uh, it locks the matron inside, but that's not till the very end when everyone's outside the attic. We also forgot to mention the the social worker comes back. Oh yeah, he does. He comes back because the police officer tells him, "Oh, so it turns out more kids have been running away besides uh, this one." Right, and he demands to see everybody in the orphanage. He wants to talk to all of the kids. This man's got two priorities. His first priority is keeping his employment. His second priority was getting strange from the matron. So once his employment was threatened, now it's like, oh, man, you know, you can't take my bread. Yeah, he he has like a he has like a hundred and eighty degree personality shift uh, before these final scenes. Mm -hmm. But all right. So they lure him into the basement into the attic because he specifically says i want to search this place you know every nook and cranny so then the handyman says all right let's start from the bottom takes him into the attic 
And as soon as he sees what's in the freezer, the handyman cleavers him in the back. Right. So we we assume Two that fight scene. We assume that he's not going to be uh, dethawed once the technology allows for rejuvenation. Um, <laughs> I think he's too far gone. Yes. But out of all this chaos, so Ellie runs away and the man in the mask chases her and he finally catches up with her in this field. In the woods, yes. Yeah, and, and then we get several reveals and I'm not even sure where to start with this scene. I'd say just go in order. All right, so first we find out that the the man in the mask is the police detective and he has been dressing up in the mask because he thought that mrs deer was up to something strange and so he wanted to see if he could scare ellie into running away he wanted to see what mrs deer would do this is like the most convoluted explanation for why he's running around in a mask possible. Like, Imagine reading this police report, right? <laughs> I, I was in an undercover capacity lurking around the orphanage as a hammer madman with the intention of traumatizing an orphan who is a suspect in a murder case into provoking a violent response from the employees who are also suspects in multiple child murder cases, right? Right, like... <laughs> If you were the screenwriter, <laughs> there's such a simpler version of events you could give here that would explain him being there. But no, this is the one they went with. So we find out that he's been there trying to scare Ellie. And then we also find out that he knows that Ellie is the killer, that Ellie killed her mother and this this client of her mother's with the hammer and he knows because she said that she hadn't seen a hammer but then he finds one no the hammer is in her nightmares oh yes she had a nightmare about the hammer so, so how would you have nightmares about the hammer if you didn't see it right flawless detective work right so so we uh so now we know that Ellie is the murderer and this police detective who we know is looking for good breeding stock <laughs> tells tells Ellie that he will keep her secret um if she agrees to marry him. And she basically agrees. And then he says I bet your mother never told you that I was the one who took her virginity. And we know from earlier in the movie that the person who took the mother's virginity was Ellie's dad. So not only is the detective the one in the mask and is blackmailing Ellie into marrying him, but he's also her father. Well, he doesn't know. Do you think he knows or not? I don't think he knows. I don't she know. Does. That's... Yeah, she does because she laughs hysterically. Like, yeah, the movie ends with like insane laughter 
into a zoom out into credits. It's very 70s and I, I love it. It's but- actually reminiscent of the ending of um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Where yeah, yeah, it's pretty the, close. It like pulls out and Leatherface is just swinging the chainsaw <laughs> around and Marilyn Chambers is laughing hysterically. Because like, what else do you do in a situation like this? I actually feel like it's down. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's actually a realistic psychological reaction. It's just to, like, how else do you deal with something this absurd? And if for those who did not listen to our recommendation and watch this movie ahead of time, this information drop happens within maybe fifty seconds. It is lightning fast. So this is the first time that you watched this. Um, yes. I've seen it a few times. Uh, so how did you feel about this ending? Well, I definitely was not quite ready for the surprise. Well, all right, let me let me rephrase that. So if, big, the big part for me watching this film was first expecting an exploitation film. And then as I'm watching it, it slowly anamorphed into a slasher film. And I wasn't ready for that because I didn't watch the preview. I didn't see the box art or anything. I, I went to this movie blind, you know, thinking it was just going to be an exploitation film. And I know we have talked before about how Black Christmas was um, like the progenitor of the modern slasher genre. But I really feel like I, I saw Black the original Black Christmas for the first time last year. But I really feel like this movie is is probably more of an originator of the slasher genre than Black Christmas. I feel like this movie did most of that stuff first. Um, that's just my my initial reaction. To this I mean, film. that's assuming that anybody saw this movie. But for me, yeah. Well, I think I think directors saw this film. Like directors growing up, like like you're saying the hammer scene from Halloween, or I'm sorry, the first person's. Uh, scene from Halloween was very reminiscent of the opening scene from this film. Right. Like, I would be very surprised if these film directors did not see this movie and get like somewhat inspired by it. I'd be very surprised. But, but um, go on a little off track here. So the big thing for me watching this film was trying to figure out who who the guy with the hammer was. And at first, I thought this movie was going to go really bizarre and it was going to be the freeze-dried husband of mr uh, of mrs deer uh, running around killing children because maybe the orphanage needed more money so they would intentionally orphan kids so they would have to be brought into the orphanage which would then be a source of revenue for you know the the criminal operation turns out that was a whole different movie i was i was thinking something completely different here that when the killer goes into the attic it is painfully obvious once you see a full frontal picture of the killer that it is totally the police detective. You see his eyes and his facial structure. And even though he has the mask on, it is totally that that detective's body and his eyes. Yeah, and the body point, is the giveaway. I'm, and at that point, I was like, all right, he is the murderer. And he is probably also the father of Ellie. And he was upset over, uh, you know, the the over the the bad parenting of the mob or something like that but i didn't i I, in that moment i was you know i was distracted by meat cleaver versus hammer i wasn't thinking about how she was how how the detective was attracted to ellie like that didn't function for me 
until after they got into the field and it was revealed that Ellie was the killer. I got blindsided. I wasn't ready for that. And then everything fell into place almost right away. Um, still, though, the, the big lead-up moment was um, it, it was still amazing for me. I think that movie had a great ending, even though it's very convoluted. The whole movie is very... Um, it is very... Ah, man. I, I guess convoluted is a word for it, but I, I think this movie has a certain charm that I was not expecting when I walked into it. Like, this might be a good moment to point out the director. His name's Philip Gilbert, and this is the only movie he ever directed. And it's not necessarily well-directed, but for how convoluted the story is, it's always clear what's happening. Like, I was never confused or lost. Yeah, I thought this movie was very competently directed, and I was very surprised to also see the director not have anything to his name except for being extras in two other random films. I think one of them was Superman 3. He was a newsreader. Like, oh, I did not see that. Yeah, that was the only that was the only other thing I recognized him in. The other was just some some extra in another film I, I hadn't seen. But yeah, I'm surprised this guy wasn't given a a, a you know, another director's chair for another film, even another low-budget horror film. Maybe because this film probably was really notorious when it came out, the drive through circuit, because, again, it was rated PG for some reason. I'm sure that upset a lot of parents who might have accidentally taken their kids to it. That I mean, I... seems like the kind of thing 70s media would get upset about. I can't imagine any parents taking their kids to the type of theater or drive-in that this would be playing in. But and, and it's worth pointing out that at the time there wasn't a PG-13 rating, but this should clearly be R. Yes, definitely. There's a lot of there's a lot of child abuse. People get murdered. There's uh, there there are limbs severed from people. Preserved bodies. Um, Im implied. Uh, uh, yeah, like I, I, I just, I, the only thing I can imagine, this is what happened. The director or whoever's in charge of uh, reporting the ratings to the ratings board made a phone call. Guy who picked up was like, all right, um, what's your movie about? And he's like, well, you know, it's like a feel good story where, you know, an orphan has to deal with the loss of her mom and, you know, find her purpose and place in life and learn to laugh at love again. And the ratings guy was like, wow, all right, that's cool. We'll just do a PG. Nice combo. And then just hung up. That was the con. That was what happened. Yeah, I mean, the, the MPAA didn't really start cracking down on movies, I don't think, until the 80s, because that's when you saw like the the second half of the Friday the 13th um, series, for example, become much more tame with less uh, explicit gore and things like during the Reagan era, they they really started cracking down on stuff. But back in the 70s, I, I don't know if I mean, you had a bunch of fucked up, weird psychodrama exploitation grindhouse movies come out in the 70s. Um, and my understanding is there is little to no regulation of any kind no it's kind of a wild west 
I mean, I, media in general didn't really start getting um, hard on ratings until I guess like the late 90s. Like video games were the same way. Like, you know, anybody could get anything up until, um, you know, M-rated games became a thing. And I think it was the late 90s, might be the early 2000s, where games like Grand Theft Auto, um, you know, Mortal Kombat's were coming out, lots of blood, lots of gore. Um, I'd imagine the same thing happened with the movie industry, just, uh, you know, a, a bit slower because it came first. Right. So we're at about an, an hour. I think we should start to wrap this up. Um, why don't you give like your final thoughts and and rate this rate this film uh, out of four? All right. Well, at one point, you know, I actually started to question if this film was going to present some kind of like anti-socialist agenda because of the time it came out and. You know, the social worker is presented as corrupt and you have these foster parents who are essentially only collecting children for the money. Um, but it turned out in the end, everyone was just a scumbag. Uh, the film really just lowers the bar for every character in almost every scene as it progresses. Um, I've already discussed like, how, you know, my, my thought process on trying to figure out the murder mystery that was probably my favorite part of the film as far as like uh, interacting with, with the, with the media, like trying to figure out just exactly how weird is this going to get? <laughs> it got weird enough for me. I don't think it needed to, to be any longer. This was, it, you know, there's, there's a lot of bad horror films, especially in the seventies and eighties that start with a shock scene, have about 40 minutes of like boring padding. And then deliver like a 15, 20 minute climax with some hot action. But it's almost never really worth it, right? But this was not the case with Blood and Lace. You know, it, it really did feel like 10 minutes. The, the boat was beginning to rock just a little bit closer to capsizing with every scene. And I really appreciated the, the seemingly fine-tuned plot development, even if it was, uh, or if, even if aspects of it were improved on site. Um, if you haven't seen the film, but you're aware of the full plot, I don't know if this is going to be necessarily worth your time, unless you're a film major at a liberal arts college or something. Like, you're trying to chronicle the, the potential history of horror films. But if you have not seen this movie, you're going in blind, I think it's a blast. Um, it, it was a lot better than I was expecting. Um, again, I was expecting an exploitation film. It ended up being a slasher film uh, that was really fun. I'm going to rate this three stars. All right. So three stars from Leland. Um, I love this movie. Uh, and as I said earlier, I really can't say why. Um, this is, even though this uh, was not ever in video stores, at least in America, um, this is the perfect example of like there's a reason why I wanted to do our first episode on this movie um, because it's the type of 70s exploitation psychodrama out of left field filled with nonsense pop psychology and like 
things that should be much more offensive than they are. And, and I, I don't know why I have this affinity for movies like this, um, but I do. Uh, I think the acting of Mrs. Deer elevates the whole movie and it gives her character weird, conflicting motivations. Um, there's there's little things this movie does that it definitely didn't need to do, but it adds so much, like the constant reminder that Ellie's mother was a prostitute. It's just like heaping on the psychological torture um, in a way that's really satisfying to me. Um, I don't necessarily, like, I didn't laugh at this movie a lot, but thinking and talking about it is funny. Um, and I can definitely imagine being with a group of people watching this movie and afterwards just being like in stunned silence. And then after a little while, like you just want to talk about it because there is no other movie like this. Um, even though it seems to inspire the slasher genre to a degree, um, it, it's definitely reminiscent of you know, other grindhouse type fare. Um, but this is a unique one. So uh, it's a weird one to try to rate because we've already mentioned things like the music that don't make it a traditionally good film. Um, There's very little about this film you can describe as traditional. Yeah, traditional in any sense, right? Um, but I guess, oh hell, I give this one four stars. Wow. Four out of four. Four stars. Yeah, That's see this one. Good yeah, see, see this movie if you haven't before. And I disagree with Leland. Even if we spoiled it for you, um, there is enough oddball acting and dialogue in this film uh, that makes it worthy of repeat viewings. Um, as I said, I, I've seen it several times and, and every time has been satisfying. Um. And I guess just to close um, what you were saying, you know, how can you laugh at this film? I really do think like the the casting with the Beverly Hills, like 90210 syndrome is really what helps that. Like actually having adults play the roles of minors make it so, you know, you can actually laugh at some of this stuff. Because if it was actually like, some poor 15-year-old girl being locked in an attic and starved to death. You know, that's not funny. But when it's like a 32-year-old dressed as, a, as a, <laughs> a child, maybe it's a little different. Yeah, I can, I can see that. Um, but anyway, so let's wrap it up there. Uh, we will be back next week. Uh, we are going to be watching the film Private Parts from 1972 which I think makes an excellent double feature uh, with Blood and Lace. So if you haven't seen it, um, watch it, and then join us next week for Private Parts. All right, um, Leland, anywhere uh, anywhere you want people to find you? No, I'm <laughs> going to be hidden in the shadows. Leland is a mystery. Um, you can find me as well as all the stuff we do on Instagram at video.store.nightmares. Um, and I will be posting 
clips and and pictures of the movies we do and and try to give you a heads up about what's coming next week so until then goodbye